Welcome to Media Matters with Bob McChesney. Today's program is from the archives, originally broadcast in October 2011. Bob's guest today is filmmaker Susan Saladoff. Bob and Miss Saladoff discuss her film, Black Coffee, which had just been released prior to Bob's conversation with her. A reminder, as this program is from the archives, we will not be able to take your phone calls today. Bob will be back with a live program next week. Bob McChesney and filmmaker Susan Saladoff on today's Media Matters program in five minutes. But first, NPR News. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Democrats are gearing up for their political convention in Charlotte, North Carolina this week. NPR's Luis Schiavone reports with a little more than 60 days to go before the election, the charges and countercharges are flying. GOP presidential hopeful Mitt Romney this weekend carried his convention's tightly scripted message of economic recovery to the campaign trail with remarks in Cincinnati. Look, if there's a coach whose record is zero and 23 million to get rid of him and get someone new. Today on ABC's This Week, White House advisor David Pluff responded. We're going to explain to the American people in the middle class of this country how we're going to continue to recover, but do more than just recover from the recession, to build an economy from the middle out. What Mitt Romney's going to offer America is top-down, trickle-down fairy dust. Mindful of the nation's 8.3% jobless rate, President Obama is appealing to voters to let him finish the job he started four years ago. Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. The cleanup continues along the Gulf Coast, where thousands of homes and businesses were flooded by Hurricane Isaac last week. Jill Bode is a spokeswoman for the American Red Cross. She says a giant mobile kitchen is providing meals to displaced residents of New Orleans. A huge kitchen that can feed 35,000 meals a day. And just to put that in context for you, uh, that is a semi-tractor trailer and a half of food a day. Utility officials say they've restored power to hundreds of thousands of people who lost service during the storm, but they say they are still hundreds of thousands of people without electricity in sweltering heat. Writing in today's Observer newspaper, Nobel Peace Laureate Archbishop Desmond Tutu calls for former President George W. Bush and former British leader Tony Blair to be charged with war crimes by the International Criminal Court. Larry Miller reports Tutu claims they deliberately lied to justify the Iraq war. Archbishop Tutu says President Bush and Blair fabricated the grounds for war to behave like playground bullies and to drive countries farther apart. He blames them for creating the conditions that led to the Syrian civil war and a possible war with Iran. Tutu claims there are double standards for prosecuting leaders for war crimes, with those from Western countries never being made to answer for their actions. In a statement, Blair denies he and Mr. Bush lied to justify the war. Last week, the Archbishop Paul out of a South African conference on leadership because Blair was attending and being paid nearly $250,000. For NPR News, I'm Larry Miller in London. Police in Pakistan said today they've arrested a Muslim cleric for evidence tampering in the case against a Christian girl accused of desecrating a Quran. They say the cleric put pages of a Quran in a shopping bag carried by the girl. The child is still in custody, charged with blasphemy, a crime punishable by death. This is NPR News. Okie dokie. Welcome back to Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney, here in WILL AM 580, based in beautiful Urbana, Illinois. Our guest today is a filmmaker, a new filmmaker, after 25 years as working as an attorney, uh, went off to make a motion picture and sort of hit one over the fence with their first time uh, at the plate. The film is Hot Movie, Hot Coffee, excuse me, and you can find out about it at hotcoffeethemovie.com. And our guest, the director and filmmaker, Susan Saladoff. Uh, Susan, thank you for joining us. No, thanks, Bob, for having me. I had the privilege of seeing this movie in a theater setting uh, a couple of weeks ago, and as soon as I saw it, I, I said I had to have you uh, on the program because it is a rare movie uh, that really does educate you and change one's perspective. I thought that the uh, Washington Post review 
said it best. It said it was a stunning debut that sends audiences out of the theater thinking in a brand new way. And I think that was my experience and sort of the experience of everyone I spoke to who has seen the movie. Uh, and it has was premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and has been on HBO this summer. And as I understand it, Susan, the DVD will be available come November 1st. Is that right? Yes, correct. You can uh, you can actually order it online right now uh, at our website, hotcoffeethemovie.com. And uh, also you can put it on your Netflix queue, and it's also available on Amazon. Well, the name, I think, really says a lot, because I recall probably about five or six years ago, I was in New York City walking around with a friend of mine who's a fairly well-known figure in the public interest community, He's done a lot of work on campaign finance reform and media issues and uh, battling the power of lobbyists. And he said to me something I thought was really interesting. He said, well, the one thing where I really agree with conservatives on, the one thing where we find common grounds, we're both opposed to all these crazy, frivolous lawsuits, like that crazy one where the woman got $3 million from McDonald's. And I thought about that uh, when I saw your movie, obviously, because it is titled Hot Coffee. And Hot Coffee is a reference to the now ubiquitous case of the woman who got $3 million from McDonald's. And uh, what that meant to our culture, what it meant politically, why that story became such a big story for all Americans that everyone's aware of it. I asked my students in my large undergraduate class last week how many had heard of it. And out of 200 and some students present, I think 90% raised their hand. And these are kids who are 19, 20 years old. And your film basically starts with that story and then deconstructs it and tells us why it exists. And perhaps we should start with that story. What... uh, what is the hot coffee story, and, and how did it take place? What is it in, in, in myth and in reality? Yeah, well, it's interesting how, you know, the first thing you said is that, you know, this crazy woman wins $3 million for spilling hot coffee, which, as you know, is not true. Um, what, you know, this, this case, the decision occurred in August of 1994, which, which is why when you ask your students who are 19 years old, you know, that they know about it when they were five years old, essentially, when it happened, is just really, the question is, why would, why would 19-year-olds know about this, this case at this point? Um, so let me tell you the facts first, and then, and then maybe we could talk a little bit about what was happening politically at the time and why, why this became sort of the most infamous case in the world. So this woman, Stella Liebeck, was 79 years old. Uh, she had never brought a lawsuit in her life. She was essentially a very conservative person, had worked up until about a, a week before this all happened. She was a passenger in a parked car. Um, you know, almost everybody thinks that she was driving the car because the uh, Jane Pauley was substituting for for Tom Brokaw on the NBC nightly NBC nightly news the night that the verdict came out and reported to the to the world wrongly that she was driving the car when she spilled the coffee, which of course, as you know, she was not. She was a passenger in her grandson's car. They went up to a McDonald's to get breakfast. She ordered a cup of coffee, and it was in one of those old-fashioned styrofoam cups, the small ones uh, that hold the heat and have those little plastic tops with the little triangular thing that you mm-hmm. can never open. Mm-hmm. And um, she, they, didn't, they put the, the cream and sugar in the bag, so she pulled, uh, they pulled into a parking spot, and she wanted to put cream and sugar in her coffee. There were no cup holders or any flat surfaces in the car, so she steadied it between her knees on the seat and tried to open that little thing, couldn't do it. So she pulled the top off, and the coffee was so hot that the cup literally collapsed, and the coffee pooled in her bucket seat in her crotch. The coffee was between 180 and 190 degrees Fahrenheit, which is coffee, which that temperature of liquid will cause third-degree burns, which are the worst kind of burns that you can get, within three to seven seconds of contact. And McDonald's not only knew that, but they had a requirement that their establishments hold the coffee at that temperature. Can I ask you right there, because when I saw the film, it was unclear to me, why did they have a requirement to set the temperature so high? Well, that's a little bit unclear, because at the trial... Um, the only testimony as to why the coffee was so hot was they put on the Juan Valdez of coffee, who said that coffee tastes the best when it's held at that temperature. But if you recall, the quality assurance representative for McDonald's testified that you can't drink coffee at that temperature. If you try to drink it, you will get burned. And McDonald's had over 700 other times that they had paid out people uh, on claims who had been burned by hot coffee because they knew that their coffee was causing people to be burned, and yet they refused to lower it. And Mrs. Liebeck 
suffered these horrible burns, as you saw in the film. I mean, the photographs are, you know, most people who see the photographs, they, they gasp. Yeah, I think if I can just interrupt you here, uh, Susan Saladoff, when I saw the film, and I think the response of people I was with is, once you see those photographs, your impression of this case forever changes. Right. And it also opens, I think, people's minds to what else am I not getting right? Like, what else have I been fed by the media and, uh, and I didn't understand and now I, I, maybe I'll think differently about? Um, so Mrs. Liebeck suffered these burns that were in her private parts. She had to have skin grafting, literally skin taken from her thighs and sewn inside of her. Um, she was in the hospital for eight days. She had um, and, and was incapacitated essentially for almost two years after this happened. And all she asked for from McDonald's was the difference between what her medical bills were, which at the time were about $10,000, and what Medicare paid. And the, the, jury, the jury got angry. The jury, McDonald's, by the way, never offered her more than $800 at any time. And so she went to trial. And the jury found that she was 20% at fault because she, in fact, had spilled the coffee on herself. But they found that McDonald's was 80% at fault because they knew that they were selling this coffee at such a high temperature and that it was causing all these burns, and they refused to do anything about it. And even though the jury awarded her uh, two point, well, they awarded her what are called compensatory damages, which are for, like, the medical bills and her pain and suffering. They awarded her $160,000 for that. And they awarded her $2.7 million in what are called punitive damages, which are very rare, and they are essentially given to punish a defendant or punish a wrongdoer and to, and to ask them to change their behavior. The, the lawyers for Mrs. Liebeck didn't even ask for these punitive damages. The judge, on his own, said to the jury, you should consider punitive damages. Now, the verdict, which was $2.7 million, was two days of coffee sales for McDonald's which the judge then reduced to $480,000, which, of course, most people don't know about. And then after the judge reduced the verdict, the, the party settled for an undisclosed amount, which I think was less. I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure it was, it was even less than what was, was awarded. And I should and, add, let me interject one thing, Susan yeah. Saladoff, uh, for our listeners. You worked as, a, as an attorney in civil lawsuits for a couple of decades, so you, you have some experience in this area. Yeah, in fact, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, why did I bring up this case? Why did I do this? And it's because I I knew from from trying cases for 25 years and just being part of the system that most people had a completely distorted view of the civil justice system because of how much money has been spent by large corporate interests to convince the public that the system is broken. Because if people think that we have too many frivolous lawsuits, lawsuit, lottery, jackpot justice, all these sort of terms of art, which were made up, by the way, um, by wordsmith people who were hired by corporate interests, and they were repeated over and over again in, in ads and in television commercials and all sorts of places. And when we start to believe that as a society, then we're willing to change things, to reform it, which most people think is a good thing until they realize that it's really themselves giving up their rights um, and corporate interests making more money. And so all of these tort reform measures, which uh, most people you know, don't really know, we can talk a little bit about what that means, all these tort reform measures are essentially having people give, voluntarily give up their constitutional rights to access the court system so that large corporate interests cannot be held accountable and they can make more money. Our guest today, Susan Saladoff, you've just been listening to. She is the filmmaker of the film Hot Coffee, which is a documentary that appeared at Sundance this year. And if I'm not mistaken, Susan, it was there, what, eight or 900 uh, submissions to Sundance, and it was one of 16 that was selected? Yeah, in the U.S. documentary competition, we were one of 16 out of, I think there were 842 that applied to that portion of the competition this year, yeah. And then the only one of the 16 to get picked up by HBO to run uh, as a documentary uh, over the air. Uh, in the summer, we were part of their summer documentary series. Yeah, yeah. We, we premiered on June 27th, and we were on HBO Demand through September. Now we're on HBO Go, which is sort of their streaming Netflix competitor. And again, the film will be available by DVD. You can order it now. Just go to the website, hotcoffeethemovie.com. Uh, this film is a ringing defense of the civil justice system and uh, a, a strong criticism of those trying to uh, undermine it, compromise it, or end it. And I want to go through 
all the components of the argument and the evidence you marshal in, in the case, Susan Seladoff. But first, let's start with, for those of uh, listeners who are really unfamiliar with the term even, uh, what exactly is the civil justice system? You know, what does it do? How, you said that it's a constitutional right. Is it in the Constitution? Uh, how does this thing work? Yeah, so um, so the civil justice system is um, uh, is um, compares to the criminal justice. I mean, most people know what the criminal justice system is. Obviously, when you commit a crime, you're you're held accountable uh, by the state or through the criminal justice system. But when there are disputes from people to people, business to business, if a person is injured in some way and they want to hold someone accountable, you can do that through the civil courts and. Um, there is a, a, the Seventh Amendment to our U.S. Constitution, and also uh, many of our state constitutions, in fact, I think all of our state constitutions have an equivalent, is called trial by jury. It's the ability for people to go to a court and to get a, a fair trial and to have a jury of our peers decide what the appropriate level of damages are in a civil case when, when a person brings it. It's, it's a constitutional right. Um, a tort, which uh, you know, if most people you know think is a is a pastry of some sort, um, which of course it is, but it's also um, a legal term, and it means a civil wrong or a harm. So that when someone harms you, they've committed a tort. T O R T. Tort reform is a term of art that was drummed up by large corporate interests. Um, to, but what it essentially means are all the different ways that we as Americans are giving up our rights to access the court system, the civil court system. And so we have now, and, and as you know in the film, there are four storylines. It's not just the McDonald's case. There are four what I call exhibits, since I'm a, a lawyer, and I, I made the film as the way I would try a case, and I used four exhibits. And the first exhibit is... Um, is the public relations campaign and how we as Americans um, are, and not just Americans, I mean all over the world, you know, we have listened to this large, uh, uh, I'm going to call it propaganda, uh, you know, large amounts of money that were spent to convince us that the system is broken. And I call that the public relations campaign, and I use the McDonald's coffee case as the prime example, sort of the poster child of, of what that campaign was like. And then the second exhibit in the film are, is what I call caps on damages because it's another way that um, uh, it's another aspect of tort reform. It's a limit on how much money people can get when they bring a case in court against uh, uh, for for a personal injury, for an injury of some sort. And and I document the story of a family that um, had identical twin boys, um, and there was a birth injury. And one boy was born with severe brain damage, and the other one was born normal. And I show what their lives are like at, on their 16th birthdays, but I go back and show what happened at birth and how caps on damages, which is they live in Nebraska and there's a total cap on damages, how it affects their lives. Um, the third storyline is, is the fictionalized version uh, or the true story of the fictionalized version of the book, The Appeal, that John Grisham wrote about how our judicial elections are essentially being bought and paid for by corporate America and how large corporate interests are, are buying the judges on our state Supreme Courts when we elect our judges. And then the fourth storyline, which is another aspect of tort reform, is how we're giving up our rights through contracts. In all of our contracts now, we're being asked to sign these contracts, or sometimes we're not even asked to sign them, and uh, they have embedded in them in the, in the fine print something called mandatory arbitration. And nobody really cares or, about it until it affects you personally, which is all about this stuff. But essentially we're, we're being asked to sign over our rights to access the courts through contracts so that if we ever have a dispute with a company that we've signed one of these contracts with, we have actually very few rights and we'll, we'll hardly ever win. So, I mean, that's sort of the shorthand version. I, I, I know you want to get some callers in, but, but those are the four, the four aspects of, of this movie. Susan Saladoff, you've just been listening to our guest today in Media Matters. I'm Bob McChesney here in WILL. Susan Saladoff is the filmmaker of Hot Coffee, uh, the film, and you can find out about it at hotcoffeethemovie.com. It's received incredible rave reviews from across the board of media, and uh, it will be available, as I said, come November 1st in DVD form. Uh, Susan Saladoff, you, you've explained what the point of the civil justice system is. And, and is the, I mean, are there 
frankly, are there a lot of these sort of bogus cases of sort of like people faking injury, uh, people coming and saying, hey, I, I hurt myself walking into your store. Now give me $20 million so I don't have to work again. Are, are there many of these cases? Does the system have a way to weed out these sort of uh, charlatans? Yeah, you know, of course there are going to be people who take advantage of every system. Um, you know, we know that we're humans. Uh, but the question is, does the, does the system have its own checks and balances? And are there many frivolous lawsuits, as people say? You know, the way that people bring these cases, I mean, I guess they could bring them on their own, uh, you know, and file a lawsuit on their own behalf, and nobody, no, we can't stop people from doing that. But the first, the first gate, gatekeeper is whether or not they're going to find a lawyer. You know, lawyers who do these kinds of cases get paid on what's called a contingency fee basis, which means that they only get paid if they win. And I can tell you that you're not going to stay in business very much or very long if you bring a lot of frivolous cases because you're going to pay a lot of money out. And insurance companies who defend these cases, uh, they, don't, they don't throw money at frivolous lawsuits, at crazy lawsuits. And so and even if you do find a lawyer and you do bring a crazy lawsuit, there's the, first, the other check and balance is the, is the judge because if you bring a case and a judge believes that it's frivolous or there's no merit, not only will it get thrown out, but you'll have to pay a fine uh, oftentimes. And then the next gatekeeper is the jury. You know, if you bring a case, you're going to have 12 people sitting on a jury. It's going to be defended by, a, you know, an insurance company and their attorneys who are paid well and who are, you know, going to give a big fight. And if a jury thinks it's frivolous, they're not going to give any money. They're going to throw it out. And then even if a jury gives money, then you've got the judge who can reduce the verdict, which is exactly what happened in the McDonald's case. And then even if that doesn't happen, then you have an appeal and then a second appeal. There's one, one check and balance after another. So the, the thought that there are a lot of frivolous lawsuits out there, the question is, you know, what is your definition of a frivolous lawsuit? And, and do they really exist or is it just, you know, something that has just been fed to us over and over again? Um, you know, people always say, oh, did you hear the one about, you know, the guy who's driving an RV and he puts it in cruise control and he goes to make a cup of coffee and then he, uh, and he gets into a car accident and he wants to sue. And people go, how crazy is that? And then you have to ask yourself, did it really happen? You know, are these just made up out of whole cloth? And if you go to uh, sites like Snopes.com or some of these others, you'll find out that these are made-up lawsuits, made up by organizations like the, like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and their Institute for Legal Reform, because they want people to think that there are all these crazy lawsuits and we have to have reform. What was striking in the movie, too, Susan's held off, was that uh, you mentioned a couple of other of these sort of wives' tale type stories that are used, were used commonly, including by people like the president of the United States, Ronald Reagan. Uh, and that when you look at them, that he was completely getting the facts wrong, but they were sort of taken at face value, uh, the interpretation he gave, uh, much like the hot coffee story. Uh, Susan Saladoff, let's talk a little bit about this campaign against civil lawsuits. You know, when did it begin in earnest? Who's behind it? How much money is in it? And what exactly is at stake? Why is it so important to the people who are, who are bankrolling this campaign? Yeah. So it's been going on for, you know, probably 30, 35 years, really, in earnest. But I, I started practicing law in 1983, and so I, I really started seeing it, like, when I, you know, really come to the, to the forefront in terms of a lot of um, there were think tanks that were starting to to work on these issues. But then there were these groups that sprung up. They were called things like Citizens Against Lawsuit Abuse. It was a national campaign. And they sound like they're citizens groups, you know, that are yeah. like sprung up spontaneously because they're outraged by all these, you know, crazy lawsuits. And what you what I came to learn is that they were made up uh, these citizens against lawsuit groups by uh, a, a public relations firm in Washington, D.C., um, that they were funded by essentially large corporations. And one of the major funders was the tobacco industry. Um, Philip Morris and R.J. R. Reynolds knew that they were making a product that was killing people and that the civil courts were starting to hold people, hold corporations like that accountable. And so they decided, well, what can we do to continue to make our product and not be held accountable? And they came up with this idea of starting these tort reform uh, uh, pr projects around the country. And they hired a public relations firm called APCO, and they came up with these Citizens Against Lawsuit Abuse uh, groups. And they, they were 
putting billboards up in, in places, you know, stop lawsuits, stop frivolous lawsuits, too many frivolous lawsuits. They put them up right in front of courthouses so that potential jurors who are walking into courthouses would see these big billboards. They would have campaigns that would be on television, on commercials, or in your um, uh, newspapers, things about, like, the Little League. You know, we're not going to be able to have a Little League anymore unless we stop these frivolous lawsuits. And they were just literally made up out of whole cloth, and millions and millions of dollars was being spent. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which a lot of people say to me after they see the film, I had no idea that was really interesting, that I didn't know what the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is. So most people think that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is a government entity, which Mm -hmm. makes sense when you call it the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. (laughs) But in fact, it is the largest lobbying group for corporations in this country. And they have been shown to be funneling money into all of these types of campaigns to convince the public that the system is broken, just like I said before, so that we would change it. And they've been doing that through judicial elections, and they've been also doing it through, um, through these campaigns that I've been talking about with these front groups. Our guest, Susan Saladoff, you've just been listening to. She is the filmmaker of the new film, Hot Coffee, a documentary. You can learn more about it at hotcoffeethemovie.com. Let's go to our first caller who's been waiting patiently. Line one, Champaign County, you're on the air with Susan Saladoff. Hi. Um, just one little detail, actually, of this whole thing. This is great work, and uh, it's amazing how uh, uh, this stereotype can be... Uh, uh, propagated so widely and people believe it without examining it. Uh, one of the things they do is they take the statistics about lawsuits um, and, you know, that you, you think it's this person with the hot coffee, but it, most of the lawsuits in this country are filed by other corporations against the corporations. So um, it isn't, it isn't this, this uh, I don't know if you have anything off the top of your head or how you handled that in the film, but um, it's incredibly misrepresentative. Uh, it, uh, of of um, what's really going on. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, the the large majority of civil lawsuits are businesses against businesses, and you know what I also find ironic. And we we um, I tried to do this in, in in the film, and it just it never wound up getting there. But you know, it, some of these politicians who are big pro tort reform advocates. You know, they're, they're, they want to limit lawsuits unless it affects them personally or their family. You know, like somebody in their family gets into a, a, a situation, a car accident, or something happens in a medical situation, and they're the first ones to use the court system. Because it's never, it's never my case that's frivolous. It's always that other person's case that's frivolous. I think that's the point you made, uh, Susan Saladoff, in the film so well, which was that some of the people who found out that they wouldn't be able to be entitled to get any uh, – uh, damages beyond a very small amount for what had been done to them uh, because of these laws that were passed limiting damages. So well, I, I, I was in favor of those laws, but I thought they were only for the frivolous cases. <laughs> Didn't realize they applied to them as well. Right. Um, you know, let's talk a little bit about uh, these jury trials. As it strikes me, as I saw your film, that the, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and, and the corporate community, especially industries that are affected by uh, public health issues and consumer issues have done a fairly effective job over the last four decades of neutering regulations that might keep them into line and giving them more free reign with uh, conducting the way they want their behaviors they wish to in the market. Why, you know, where, where exactly does the this conservative jury trials really get to be so central to them? What, why is that something they're taking dead aim at? Letting well, because the, they can't control jurors. Because, because, you know, as we say in the film, you can't whine and die in the jury. You know, our, um, we have three branches of government. Our executive branch and our legislative branch, we all know, are essentially, you know, regulated by money. I mean, they're just influenced so much by who, uh, you know, who's, who's helping to, to finance their campaigns and who, who are those people beholden to. But our court system is our third branch of government, and it's supposed to be above all that. It's supposed to be, a, you know, the guardians of the law and not be influenced by money and power. And, and essentially, when you have jurors who are just us, you know, the same people who vote, the same people who, you know, they're just, they're just people. 
And you can't influence them when they're sitting on a jury. So if you've got, you know, a large corporation and they've been, you know, like BP and they're dumping, you know, uh, negligently uh, uh, dumping, you know, millions of gallons of oil into our into the Gulf and, you know, you've got these fi- these these fishermen who want to bring a lawsuit against them. You know, these jurors get to decide what a fair amount is to compensate these people uh, uh, who have been damaged. And you can't influence them, so that's why that's why if you can't if you can't influence them as a corporate entity, well then you, what you want to do is you want to prevent people. You want to put up so many obstacles uh, to either prevent people from getting into the system, or when they do get into the system, to put limitations on how much those corporate entities are going to be held accountable. And then if you can't win there, well then let's just buy the judges. Let's just make sure that now that we can elect our judges and they have to run for office. Well, we'll we'll campaign. I mean, we'll we'll fund their campaigns to the point where maybe they feel beholden to us, so that when those large verdicts come out by the juries, who we can't control, then maybe when they get appealed to the highest court, they'll get overturned because now we have some influence over those judges who are in the supreme courts of our states. Let's talk, if we can, Susan Seldoff, about uh, some of the reforms that this uh, campaign against. Uh, uh, civil justice system have won this, and this is mostly, as I understand it, these have taken place at the state level. Uh, so every state has had a sort of separate fight, although there is a federal fight. But there, in many states, maybe a majority of the states, there have been caps put on uh, the amount that uh, someone can receive in a civil case. Is that correct? Yeah. So um, you know, there's been an attempt to do this at the national level. Uh, many times, uh, Newt Gingrich tried it when he was doing his contract with America, which was happening, by the way, at the time that this verdict came out, which is why the McDonald's verdict, which is why the McDonald's verdict got so much attention. Um, his contract with America was happening then, and um, and even now um, at the federal level, our, our the. Uh, uh, House of Representatives has a bill called H.R. 5, and they're trying to put a $250,000 cap on damages in medical malpractice cases. <clears throat> it hasn't really gotten very many legs because these issues are state issues. They're not supposed to be federal issues. <clears throat> and so what's happened at the state level, as you said, is that in almost all of our states, we have an, an absolute amount of money that the legislature, the Congre- the, the state uh, uh, government has said this is the absolute maximum amount of money that anyone can ever get in this type of a lawsuit, in a personal injury lawsuit, in a medical malpractice lawsuit, etc. And so what you have is you've got these, these politicians who are coming up with these one-size-fits-all damages, which is against the constitutions, uh, uh, both at the federal level and at our state level, which is to trial by jury. And these people never see the, the person who's injured. They never get to hear the facts. They never see what the circumstances are. And they're saying that no matter what happens, no matter how negligent, no matter what, it, what the, the injury is, no matter how old the person is, no matter how long they're going to have to live with an injury, this amount of money is the absolute maximum. So that if you're blinded or if you are, you know, paralyzed or if you have brain injury, in some situations they're saying $250,000 is the most that you're ever going to get. And if you're a child, for example, and you, you, you have to live your entire life, and it's, some, it's no fault of your own. Somebody, you know, negligently, like maybe, you know, was was not paying attention or maybe was drunk or maybe whoever, whatever the, the circumstances are, we don't know because it's, it's, it's supposed to be individualized. And these caps put this one-size-fits-all uh, 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 amount of damages on, which as far as I'm concerned is completely unfair and discriminatory, particularly against those people who don't work outside the home, because it's not oftentimes the economic damages, like wage loss, are not capped just the non-economic damages, which are things like pain and suffering, which are capped. Susan Seldoff, let me ask you a question about this that occurred to me as I saw the film, which is that, you know, one of the reasons, as you said, in the McDonald's case, they instituted that huge penalty was to discourage McDonald's from that activity in the future so there wouldn't be 700 more people who would spill this hot coffee and have third-degree burns or whatever happened to them. 
And I recall, and correct me if I've got my facts wrong, that back in the 1970s, I believe it was, Ford Motor Company had some problems with, I believe it was the Pinto. Yes. And if someone bumped into your Pinto, your rear into your Pinto, the car occasionally would blow up and possibly kill you. And there was a major lawsuit about this in the civil system, uh, much like we're talking about. And if I'm not mistaken, the, the data they got from the Ford Motor Company was that the Ford Motor Company had some idea this would happen. But they'd done the math on it, and they figured it was less expensive to, to go to a lawsuit than it was to retool all their factories. Yeah, and, that's exactly right. And so it seems to me, if you understand it that way, if it's a business decision firms make about what, what to do, and these civil cases influence it, once you lower the uh, amount that they can penalize to $250,000 maximum from whatever unlimited before, then it just changes the calculus that firms will keep doing bad behavior for a lot longer than they would otherwise. That's exactly right, because there's, you know, most corporations, I think, even you know, by their bylaws, you know, they have to, for their shareholders, make money, Right. And so their incentive is to make as much money as possible. And they are not going to change their behavior necessarily unless it is economically not, uh, doesn't make sense for them to do it. And so Ford Pinto, for example, the, the, the smoking gun memo that was found, which, uh, which caused a huge, huge punitive damage award against, uh, against Ford, was that they made a statistical calculation that so this is how many people will die or be or be burned by uh, by this the rear fuel tank um, and this is how much it's going to cost us to pay out in those uh, lawsuits versus recalling all of those pintos and removing the rear fuel tank and putting it as a side saddle or, or somewhere else and this is how much that's going to cost and it costs less for us to pay out these claims for these people who, who are, are dying or who or are burned and boy, that got people angry, which of course it should. But it was an economic decision. And oftentimes, in fact, I would say even most times, corporations will not do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, but only because that it, what, which thing is going to be less expensive for us. And that's what punitive damages are about. Punitive damages are extremely rare. I mean, they're given like in, like, I don't know, one, less than 5% of the time. I think it may even be 1% of the time in these types of cases. And <clears throat> they're extremely rare. I think the average punitive damage award is like $25,000. You know, but you only hear about the huge ones. But the purpose of them is to punish a wrongdoer who is doing something that's malicious or reckless and to prevent them from doing it again. And I guess if you don't have much regulation or the regulators are uh, heavily influenced by the commercial interests are supposed to be regulating, this is the only recourse for citizens. Absolutely. And Let's go to our phone away, lines you know, now. If you take it away, you're taking away uh, uh, the ability to hold people accountable when they do things that, that are really harmful. Let's go to our phone lines now where we have a couple of callers waiting patiently to speak with Susan Saladoff, our guest today, who's the filmmaker, her rookie, her first-year effort, uh, her first movie, Hot Coffee, which we're talking about. And you can learn more about it at hotcoffeethemovie.com. Let's start by going to line one, Springfield. Thank you for your patience. You're on the air with Susan Saladoff. Uh, yes, thank you. Um, I was wondering if this uh, access to the civil justice system was one of the issues that uh, might be being addressed by the uh, people involved in the Occupy Wall Street movement, and um, if, it, if it is not, uh, what might they do to uh, call attention to this, uh, this problem? Yeah, you know, um, I haven't heard that issue yet being, you know, one of the issues um, in the Occupy movement. Um, I do know, of course, that in the uh, presidential election cycle and also uh, at many of the state levels, these issues of tort reform, you know, can continue to get brought up as uh, I think Rick Perry has it as one of his top four issues in his campaign, for example. Um, so um, in, it, it's just like anything else. It's, it's, it's education. I mean, I'm hoping that, that by you are listening to this program right now that you're learning something and that you'll pass it on to the next person, and hopefully you'll get a copy of the movie and you'll watch it and maybe you'll have a house party and then, you know, you'll, you'll teach other people what, what's going on. It's really, you know, I tell people all the time I made this movie because it, it had to be made. I, I kept waiting for someone else to make it, frankly, for 25 years. And when no one else did, I thought, okay, I guess it's me. And um, so I made this movie to educate people, but I tell people all the time, I'm passing the baton on to you. You know, once you get, uh, get this information, just like Bob's doing by having me on this show, it's like, I mean, each of us, we should let the next person know because we're talking about our own rights here. 
and we don't get it as as we as we've already said until it affects us personally but it would be wonderful if we could each let the other person know hey i think you've got that wrong let's let's figure out what the truth is here and um and then vote on these issues and call your legislators one of the issues in the film is on these mandatory arbitration clauses well there's a bill in the house and the senate right now called the arbitration fairness act you know it's going nowhere because nobody really knows what arbitration is but if once people see the film and they start calling their congressman and calling their senator and saying we need to have this passed then that's how things get changed we have a couple callers waiting patiently i just want to do a, a quick follow-up before we go to the next caller which is you know, one of the arguments that has been made widely is that because of frivolous lawsuits, insurance companies are forced to pay out much more than they would otherwise, and then they have to raise the rates on everyone else um, uh, in order to cover the cost. So we all end up paying indirectly, or if not directly, for all these frivolous lawsuits that are flooding the civil justice system. And now that they've put these caps in most states on the amount of damages that can be won, and, and they've really reduced it dramatically, have we? is there any evidence that insurance companies have gone out and lowered their uh, premiums to businesses and individuals to sort of say, okay, now we don't need as much money from you? Well, actually, just the opposite has occurred. So what, what's happened is, and in those states where these tort reform measures or these caps and limitations on our ability to access the courts have happened, the insurance companies um, have, gotten, have won, won their battle in the, in the legislators, legislatures, and they've reduced uh, the amounts that they have to pay out, but they've never passed on those savings to the policyholders. And so the doctors and the business people and also, we're all, they're all paying the same amount in insurance, and the insurance companies just make more money. There's almost no regulation, by the way, for insurance companies. It's, it's as if they're, you know, they have a free, free pass. Let's go um, back to the phone lines right now. We have line two, Champagne, who's been waiting patiently. Welcome to the show. You're on the air with Susan Saladoff. Thank you. Uh, first, I just wanted to thank you for making this movie. I've been bothered by this case as well ever since it happened. I only know, knew a uh, fraction of the uh, untruths associated with it that you pointed out today, but I've... Uh, it's always bothered me how misinformed the public was about it, so I'm really glad you've you've made this movie. Um, my uh, my question is, it seems like uh, the um, the libertarian uh, creed, which has become so powerful in the Republican Party lately, has always been to reduce the size of government, reduce regulation, and just let everything be worked out in the courts. Let people sue if they're wronged, and it seems like uh, the um, for that to happen, you have to have courts that are free to actually uh, to work things out equitably. I, w I was wondering if uh, if there's any response from the uh, either the, the mainline um, libertarians or the the Tea Party um, people who who feel they're against uh, government regulation. It seems like this is actually government regulation of the courts that they would be against. And I, I realize this that uh, much of the much of the uh, uh, complaints from that sector are only about the the violations of the libertarian creed that um, that uh, go against traditional uh, Republican uh, uh, concerns. But I, I would just be really curious if there's ever if there's um, any concern from the the uh, hardline believers in that uh, or or from the grassroots against this issue. Thank yeah. you very much, caller Susan Saladoff. Yeah, you know I haven't heard obviously from any. Uh, uh, groups, so to speak, in terms of in response to the film. But I will tell you that I we have a, a, a Facebook fan page as well. It's um, uh, facebook.com slash hotcoffeethemovie where people you know can like it and then can comment. And we've gotten so many comments from people saying things like, I was a die-in-the-wool conservative. I always voted for these you know tort reform measures. I was one of those people who made fun of this lady. I will never do that again. I've learned so much. You know, this is an eye-opening movie. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And so you know, we're getting a ton of positive response from even people who traditionally um, would potentially, you know, be supporters of tort reform, at least from a political point of view, mostly because they didn't really understand what they were talking about, um, and saying thank you for, for opening my eyes. I don't really think this is a Republican or a Democrat issue, although no. from a political point of view, it has been that way. But it's Does interesting. That the, I think the caller's point, which I thought was striking, and I hadn't really heard it put this way before, is that if you're going to have, if you believe in so-called free markets and not having government regulation, so you don't have the Federal Trade Commission or any sort of consumer agency representing uh, the consumer and you let the market do its own thing, 
then you, if you don't, you have to have then the civil justice system there as a recourse uh, for consumers when they're actually wronged. I mean, you can't, you can't have neither. And the libertarians use argument, I think, should be in support of the civil justice system. I agree with you 100%. I, I've used that argument many times. As the Tea Partiers, I, you know, when he said as well, you know, if they really believe in the Constitution, then, you know, you've got to believe in all of them, not just the Second Amendment, but the Seventh Amendment. Let's go to our phone lines again to another caller for Susan Saldoff, the maker of the film Hot Coffee that we're talking about today in Media Matters. Let's go now to line four, Peoria. You're on the air. Okie doke. I, you may have discussed this to a certain extent, but you always hear things like there's no uh, obstetricians in southern Illinois because it costs $100,000 a year plus to insure uh, for insurance because of lawsuits. And uh, maybe you could talk a little bit more about whether that's true or, like you say, the uh, tort reform doesn't really reduce uh insurance rates, but I, I'm questioning because we see every once in a while we see billboards that say, you know, uh, uh, stop frivolous lawsuits or you'll lose all your doctors. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. It's, it's just it's another one of the myths. It's, uh, you know, every single state says, oh, doctors are leaving the area because of these high medical malpractice uh, uh, insurance rates. And I'm thinking, okay, well, if they're leaving all, the area in every state, where are they going? Um, the the truth is, and the statistics are that that doctors uh, uh, are increasing in in almost every state, and tort reform um, is is. I mean, I it, it, I don't. I actually have sympathy for the doctors. You know, their rates are going up at times, but they're not going up because of lawsuits. They're going up because insurance companies want to make more money. And when the market is going down and insurance companies start losing money through investments, they raise their rates. They raise their rates all over the place, not just for medical malpractice, but for our car insurance and our homeowner's insurance. But when the market's doing well, you don't see them lowering our rates, do you? And so this is really just another way of corporations, and particularly insurance companies in this situation, making more money. And so thank you, caller. Those billboards and those, that, that, that uh, uh, line of thinking about doctors leaving the area and doctors aren't practicing, just myth. You know, I want to ask you, Susan Saladoff, has there ever been, to your knowledge, in the last 20 or 25 years, sort of like a, a bunch of like just working class or middle class Americans who sort of got together uh, at a school meeting or something and just started organizing a campaign against lawsuits? Or has this thing been entirely driven by corporate it's, money? Uh, it's, in, it's entirely driven. And I will tell you a funny story. We premiered at Sundance um, on January 24th. And two days before we premiered, I happened to be at a party at Sundance, and I was telling people about the movie, and this woman says to me, oh, well, I worked in tort reform. And I said, excuse me, what does that mean? And she, <laughs> I, she says, well, I worked, I worked in tort reform for a while. I said, well, did you work for an insurance company? And she said, no. And I said, well, did you work for Big Tobacco? And she goes, you know about that? And I said, well, what do you mean I know about it? It's in my movie. And she goes, I said, well, about the Citizens Against Lawsuit Abuse Group? She goes, you know about those? And I'm like, well, yes. She goes, I started those. And I said, what? I said, I've been looking for you for two years. What do you mean you started them? She goes, yeah, I worked for, I said, did you work for, for she goes, I worked for the public relations firm, and I came up with the idea. And I said, no, wait a second. What about that guy? Because I had actually uh, had contacted this guy down in Texas, and I was going to interview him for the film. And I said, what about him? He says, oh, no, I hired him. Wow. I mean, this is amazing. Two days before I'm premiering at Sundance. It was like, you know, one of these things, you know, like one of these, these spiritual moments where you go, I guess I'm doing the right thing. Everything's on the right path. <laughs> this is coming up in my field two days before we premiere. You know, one of the uh, aspects of the film we've only alluded to a couple of times, and it's so important and it deserves a full show at some point, is the uh, really the switch in American society where most of our judge positions, statewide uh, Supreme Court positions, are elected positions at the state level. They're very important positions. And until... Maybe 20 years ago, these elections, I think, were fairly dry. There's very little money involved. Often, you know, I don't think there was, uh, these were not high stakes races by any stretch of the imagination. And they've been sort of turned around and we've seen this massive increase of money coming into them. And it's it's actually one of the most frightening parts of your movie. 
Yeah, and 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 particularly now with the um, if people uh, are familiar with the Citizens United case that the Supreme Court ruled on in January of 2010, which essentially gives corporations unlimited ability to fund elections without even disclosing, you know, who's behind the money. Um, so as we know, we have these super PACs now, and yeah, this this is a really this is really scary because. Um, just like our U.S. Supreme Court, which deals at, is the highest level court for our country, at the state level, which is you know where most of the laws are actually made um, regarding you know what we do on a day-to-day basis, um, our, our state Supreme Court justices are the ones who make those decisions of what's constitutional, what's not, whether verdicts that are held up, uh, are given by jurors are upheld, and now in in most of our states we are electing these these judges, these positions, and who, most people don't know who these people are or what their, their backgrounds are, and even in some states, we're being asked to elect them as Republicans or Democrats, and what, I don't know, to me, that just seems ridiculous. I mean, like, if a judge isn't supposed to be a Republican or a Democrat, then they're supposed to be completely neutral and impartial, so now that we're electing judges, and that, that means they have to run for office, they have to raise money, then they're they have to be. I mean, they're essentially beholden to those people who are those entities that are giving them the most amounts of money. And Carl Rove came up with this brilliant idea back uh, started in Texas that if if companies from all over the country, by the way, um, put money into these campaigns, um, particularly in those in those states uh, where there have been you know larger verdicts. Um, that they can essentially buy a, a Supreme Court justice or maybe buy more than one. Many people may even know in West Virginia um, a couple years back the, the, um, there was a judge who was um, essentially, I'm going to say bought, for lack of a better word, um, in West Virginia. And there was a case, uh, the, the Massey-Cole case, that came up, and it was this one judge's vote. It was a, it was a split court, essentially, and when this person was was became a, a, a judge, this like fifty million dollar verdict was coming up, working its way up to the Supreme Court of West Virginia, and then they bought this judge, and then the the court flipped to uh, uh, and and reversed that that judgment. So, and then it turned out that that the uh, the CEO and of of the company had put large, large, large amounts of money into this person's uh, election campaign. Susan Zellweger, so is, is, is it fair to say, listening to this, that you know I've seen a lot of these TV ads for judges over the years, and you have a, a few examples in your film as well, that whenever you see an ad against a Supreme Court uh, judge candidate in a state that talks about how he's you know, soft on child molester, soft on kiddie porn, soft on uh, you know, letting repeat offenders go free, uh, that invariably those are taken out of context, baloney things in the ads that have no bearing on what the justice ever does, and it's being bankrolled by private corporate interest. It, that's absolutely true, and they usually do it in in the guise of a front group, like Citizens for a Safer Community. Or citizens, citizens against pedophilia. Exactly, no, and it, you know who who's behind these organizations, and you know are these these ads truthful? And they're always they're always fear based. You know, it's it's like that's the big thing in our society right now. If we if we scare people enough, then they'll be so afraid to 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 uh, that they'll, that they'll always vote against something. Let's go and, back to our last uh, phone call for the show, Susan Saldoff. Let's go to Champagne Line One. You're on the air. Yes, I would like to ask about the remarkable happenstance uh, where you ran into the lady at the party at Sundance two days before your premiere. And she said that she was the one who had thought up these astroturf groups and was responsible for some of the other things uh, that, that you're dealing with. I wondered how she seemed to feel about what she had done. And, uh, I mean, it seems quite remarkable that she would be so frank with you. I was wondering, did she have regret or pride or distance or, or just what? And did you learn anything further from her that you'll be able to use in your future work? Yeah, so I asked her exactly that because I, of course, I want to know what people's motivations are. And she said I was young and needed the money. And I, uh, I, I asked her, I said, would you, I said, I've been looking for someone like you that I could interview for this movie. I had been, you know, searching for sort of an insider. 
And I said, would you, would you go on film? And she said, no. And I said, well, I'll, you know, we'll cloud up your face and I'll, <laughs> you know, make your voice funny and all of the, you know, the yeah. stuff that you do. And she said, no, no, I would be too afraid. She doesn't do it anymore, by the way. She did, and I won't disclose who she is, but, but, um, but she, uh, she, she doesn't do that anymore, but she said, I would be afraid. People ask me all the time, you know, are you afraid? And I said, no. Well, I did notice in in doing the research for this movie, I did notice you've got some friends from the other side of the aisle who've devoted a lot of time on the Internet to attacking you. Yeah, they're all those trolls. I think that that's what they're called, you Mm -hmm. know, spend all their time going onto blogs and, you know, bad-mouthing the movie and saying it's all propaganda. That's the big big thing on the other side, that my movie is propaganda. I tell people all the time, you know, I have a point of view, clearly. You know, I lived this for 25 years, and... I, I, when I, when, as, if you were at that screening, I usually tell people, look, I was a lawyer, I was a trial lawyer, and when I'm asking people who are sitting in a jury to render a verdict, I want them to know both sides of the story before, both sides of the issue before they render a verdict. And that's what I'm saying right now to the American public. Before you vote on these issues, which you're being asked to do, by the way, in 2012 and in every election cycle, but before you do and before you come up with an opinion, at least know both sides of the issue. For 25 years, you've only heard one side. This movie, Hot Coffee, gives you another perspective. Watch it and then come up with your own verdict. And uh, now that you've had the success of the film, and again, listeners interested can go to hotcoffeethemovie.com to learn more about Susan Saladoff's film, and you can order uh, the DVDs available number 1st. Susan Saladoff, are you going back into the courtroom, or are you going to stick with Hollywood? Well, you know, I, I'm going to, as I say, I'm going to ride this wave as long as it, as it goes. My goal is to really um, have every American see this film before they vote in the 2012 election. So I'm on the road now with it, going to schools and universities. I'm also doing this, um, it's not up yet, so I'm, I'm a little bit, but um, I'm going to have this holiday giving program on the website where mm-hmm. people can send a copy of Hot Coffee to any candidate who's running for office. And it'll be at a really discounted price, and you can put a little holiday card with it. So check back at our website uh, to, in a couple weeks, and we're going to, well, probably by the end of the month, and we'll have this website up so people can send it. So that when your politicians who are running for office say, oh, I support this, maybe get them a copy of Hot Coffee and see whether or not they really understand what they're supporting. Well, I think it's fair to say if they see it, it will certainly change their understanding of the issue dramatically. Our guest today has been Susan Zeldoff, the filmmaker, the maker of Hot Coffee. Uh, Susan Saldoff, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Bob. I really appreciate it. And good luck with your work. I want to thank Kyle Croha, my engineer, Melissa Trent, my producer, for their great work. I'm going to be back with you all 167 hours. Until then, everyone, have a great week. ago in Denver, Democrats nominated Barack Obama for president. With profound gratitude and great humility, I accept your nomination for presidency of the United States. This week, President Obama addresses the Democratic Convention in Charlotte. I'm Mara Liasson. Join us for special coverage from NPR News. Coverage starts Tuesday night at 7. Today's broadcast is made possible with support from Mike Weaver Ballroom Dance, private instruction for social or competitive dancing, weddings, or other special events, lessons for singles or couples, beginners, or advanced of all ages. Information at 378-4601 or on your web, search at Mike Weaver Ballroom Dance.
This is Illinois Public Media, WILL 580 AM and 90.9 FM.